Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Banerjee UK Chief Executive Lucinda Hicks about the strategy behind the company's new unscripted group plus its acquisition plans for 2022 and beyond. Lucy Montgomery and Rhys Thomas, the creative duo behind Dodger, discuss the new BBC Oliver Twist family adventure series. And SVT Head of Factual Acquisitions Mikhail Osterby on the challenges the Swedish pubcaster faces from global streamers. Banerjee UK acquired format specialist Snack TV and appointed its founder Natalka Snack as chief executive of its remarkable entertainment and initial labels to create a new unscripted group at the end of last year. The company also hired BBC Factual Chief Patrick Holland around the same time as its executive chairman and just this week added Fox exec Claire O'Donoghue to its ranks with a remit to take UK formats to the US. Banerjee UK Chief Executive Lucinda Hicks spoke to Ruth Laws about these developments, the firm's growing focus on premium factual and scripted, plus its acquisition plans for 2022 and beyond. This interview was recorded prior to the news of O'Donoghue's appointment. You've got the remarkable entertainment initial and Snack TV. And then at the same time, it's slightly separate, but at the same time, Kitty, who runs Remarkable Factual, is also now CEO of of that and of um, RDF. So we've sort of mirrored that sort of CEO or being over multiple businesses on both sides, entertainment and and the more factual side. I mean, the logic overall, it's simply really about scaling up and giving firepower to what are two really key stables um, in the UK business. We've got really great creatives within those businesses and really amazing IP. So whether you're talking about, you know, Pointless, um, House of Games, Starstruck on the sort of remarkable side, um, on the initial side, um, the games which is coming up and Tenable and so on. So that's, you know, it's, you know, it, it's all there. But how do you grow it, particularly when our core UK market isn't growing? So we've got to be really strategic in where we focus development efforts and, and how we expand beyond the UK internationally, um, you know, whether that's streaming platforms platforms or otherwise. And I think we're seeing it everywhere, really. I mean, the whole sort of commissioning landscape is changing and you've got to be really strategic about development. So placing, you know, it's that old phrase, you know, placing fewer bigger bets and, you know, bets that the creatives really believe in and that when you're part of a group our size, we've got the scale to really be able to back them through, you know, the development funds and and so on that we have. And, you know, we're doing it everywhere, not just in entertainment. So if you look at something like Janet, the work of the Janet Jackson documentary that, that literally just launched, you know, that was a huge bet for us. It's been five years in in the making. Starstruck, which is now about to come up on ITV. Kudos have got some really big bets. So it's sort of we're trying to get you know into that phase of, of sort of bigger bets, bigger payoffs, hopefully. And you know, Kitty and Natalka have both got really incredible creative track records. They've got that ability to spot a really big idea and and really back it to create that valuable IP that's got longevity and commercial value that extends beyond just the UK. So you know, obviously Kitty had your home made perfect, your garden made perfect. She's got doctors for BBC that's just coming. And it's that sort of combination of instinct and, and focus combined, in her case, over with RDF, with like Rachel Arnold going in as creative director and RDF's track record for really high quality production. So that, you know, that bit of it feels really logical. And then on the entertainment side, um, Natalka is going to be building on the remarkable success, you know, like I said, with the wall and pointless and so on. And she does just bring that firepower and she's got the ability to really maximise the potential of an idea and crucially take ideas beyond the UK. So she's got an amazing 
amazing reputation in the UK and the US, amazing really relationships. Knack TV will remain and she can just, like I say, supersize because Kat and Katie, who run Initial, have done an, you know, a phenomenal job there. And they have Beauty and the Geek, the games for ITV, they've got Tenable, they've got Soccer Aid that comes back. So, so they're really succeeding, but all of that's in the UK. So how can we help them to think bigger? So that's the logic of the Initial bit. Well, how does it all work? Is there going to be like a new name for this group or all the companies are still going to exist individually, but they just share IP and create it? Well, no. So importantly, no. The companies all exist individually. That won't change. That's not the, the logic here. It's about keeping the individual labels. But by having such a supersized exec over the top of them, it can help them scale up and bring the benefits that somebody like Natalka or Kitty can bring to a company. But that distributing that talent across multiple labels. And it also enables you to be more strategic in spotting those opportunities and going, right, we're going to go all in on an idea over here with this company at the same time that you haven't got another company over here doing exactly the same thing all going for one slot so it's just about saying we can spend even more on development but in a far more strategic way so remarkable james fox left as the md of remarkable entertainment so natalka's replacing him so she's not going to backfill that role she is doing that role but in addition she's also continuing to run snack her company and then she's just got this oversight role of initial so kat and katie who, who are the mds of initial remain but have that support from her and then jim allen left rds so again we haven't replaced an md of rds kitty's taking over there but rachel arnold has gone in as the creative director so we've sort of upscaled the levels below and then put a more senior person on top so you sort of get rid of that middle role of an md and i also wanted to talk about the hire of patrick holland and what that means for um banerjee uk he's obviously the new executive chairman i literally just had breakfast with him this morning and it reminded me what a lovely man he is i think he, i think he's a really great hire he's got you know he's got a really deep-rooted knowledge of the of the whole broadcasting landscape you know he's been an indie boss he's been a channel head he's been a commissioner he's worked across a lot of genres he's got great talent relationship he's structured you know co-pro deals with you know streamers for the bbc so he's got that sort of commercial side and the relationship there and like i say culturally he's a he's a really good fit because he's just a thoroughly decent decent man so um i think it's i think it's a great hire and he's obviously coming in to replace peter who was also all of those things so hopefully it should be a seamless transition from one to the other so it feels like with Patrick coming in that's the stable kind of com- complete now so yeah it feels like we're in a good place it feels like this year is sort of not only are we kind of hopefully coming out of you know pandemic and, and restrictions but also we've got those new hires now in place people like Kitty and like Rachel Arnold are in their new roles and we're sort of ready to you know launch to the next phase of it so dear god let there not be another variant and I just wanted to check I think Banerjee UK is it 29 production companies and labels we're more like low 20s are you planning to acquire more or are there any particular you know genres of produ- production companies you're, you're looking at like you know perhaps more scripted or yeah I think I've all said that I'd like us to look at scripted and natural history there are two priorities we're not going to acquire for the sake of acquiring but both scripted I mean obviously scripted is you know, a hugely booming area I think our business partly because of COVID but also partly because the non-scripted side has grown we've slipped to sort of being more like sort of 60-40 slipped in favour of non-scripted and we'd like to sort of rebalance that back a bit both scripted and um, natural history you know give really great access to international opportunities and with streamers and so on and both of them also really require access to huge levels of funding and support that a group like Banerjee we can do that we've got the funds to be able to do it so we're really well placed to be in those areas so um, natural history we're not we're not really present in at all at the moment in the UK but that's definitely a priority as well. And are you looking at sort of companies in the nations and regions as well? We're quite well positioned in the nations and regions now anyway we have sort of like over 
over a thousand hours being produced in the nations and regions um, at the moment. And so with the RDF West and IWC and Workbee, Remarkable, Scotland, um, Dragonfly North, uh, Comedy Unit, all of them are, you know, are based totally in the nations and, and regions. But it also means we've got the infrastructure for other labels to be able to produce there when when we need to as well. So we are pretty well served, but there are such great opportunities, you know, obviously, particularly with the um, PSB, so nations and regions pop that you know those any label that is based in the nations and regions offers a point of difference so it's it's definitely interesting but we're we're we're, we're in a pretty good shape already what do you look for in a label that, that, that you would think about acquiring talent is the biggest thing it's the it's the talent their relationships their track record and their ambition above sort of all else obviously we're always make thinking about do you, you know, do you want to build from scratch or do you want to acquire but it's always the same thing that you're looking at first and foremost is who's talent running that and who are the talent in that company because ultimately that's what's going to make it succeed or or not succeed and you know if you're acquiring something you want it to have a long-term reliable sort of profit profile and hopefully that we can bring something to the table as well that will benefit them um, and that will help them grow you want it to be a two-way relationship is a, a big library important i mean it's a bonus definitely but i think we're also realistic about how deals are structured and where rights are traded so it's definitely a bonus if you if you have a large library but i mean banerjee right you know has one of the largest independent libraries in in the market adding more to that is obviously incredibly beneficial but it's not it's not the most important thing and alongside acquisitions you've also launched a startup drama producer double dutch i wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that and what are the opportunities and challenges of startups versus acquisitions so we've done a couple of startups some of the recent ones that have been really successful so wild mercury with Derek wax a couple of years ago and he's just about to launch this year the rig which is a huge commission from um amazon that drops this year Derek was part of kudos before iona who's started double dutch with was obviously part of tiger uh tiger aspect so i think having those pre-existing relationships with the talent really helps but iona is an incredibly talented exec and she's also brought with her as uh, sort of part of the of the deal um albeit not not entirely equity julie geary who's the writer um who's been an amazing writing partner for her for you know across many projects and i think iona has an amazing track record in the industry with both sky and you know and other broadcasters um, she's already got a couple of fun developments and i think she's gonna she's hitting the ground running already but the benefits and uh, you know between the two i mean you're profitable from day one when you when you make an acquisition it's a pre-existing company but you also pay a premium for that because it's a really hot you know it's a really hot market if you're doing a if you're starting up a business you know it takes longer to get to that profitable point there's an arguably greater risk in there as well but when you're starting a business with creatives that you know and trust that it's you know it's a calculated risk and it's a risk that in certainly in these cases we feel is not that much of a risk um, and we've totally backed them so now I'm excited about them. Um, and obviously one of the sort of major talking points of the industry of the past year has been kind of talent retention and I have noticed obviously that you've inked a deal with Jack Whitehall I just wondered if that if you think that's the kind of a, a solution to you know retaining talent and how you're attracting talent to your programming so yeah I mean look the Jack deal's fantastic we've worked with Jack for um for years and years whether that's things like travels with my father or bad education so again that relationship is really deep rooted 
And I think that, you know, that really helps. And yes, we would absolutely do more like that. I think, you know, you, your objectives need to be aligned between yourself and the talent. And like I say, ideally, you do have some sort of pre-existing relationship. That talent could also be on screen or off screen. You know, it could be a writer, um, as I said, mentioned with Julie um, and Double Dutch. But the same logic still applies. You know, you, it, it helps when you know that people are ready and you've, you've worked before. Sometimes those relationships are, you know, are less formal. They're not, you know, in the way that we've, not necessarily in the way that we've done with Jack. Um, sometimes they are just based on a long-term working relationship. So we've worked with people like Idris Elba, Greg and John from MasterChef, Kim and Simon from Sunday Brunch, Angela Scanlon, you know, it can work in lots of different ways. But yes, talent is often the way to open doors to, you know, getting the best possible ideas you can on screen and really scaling them up. So we're definitely open and keen to do, do more. I always wanted to ask you about the global demand for UK content. I mean, obviously, this is particularly within scripted because non-English language content, you know, has become huge over the past year. So I just wondered if, if you think UK, you know, the demand for UK content has changed as a result of that. I think everything's growing, right? I mean, the whole doesn't matter whether it's English language or foreign language. I mean, you know, look at Call My Agent or Squid Game. I mean, it's international language demand is also increasing, but the overall market, I think, is just increasing. And the growth of all the streamers and, and, and multiple new platforms and buyers, you can try to say it, but it's, it's obviously a huge bonus for us. And we're doing all we can to benefit from that. Hence, again, as I say, you know, that focus on scaling up our ideas and thinking beyond the UK is going to be the, the key to our growth. And how's Manager UK supporting new and diverse talent both on and off screen? I mean we've got a lot of uh, a number of sort of different ways that we tackle it I suppose for want a better expression. We have our bright bulb scheme. We've been running it for years and it ran in different forms under Endemol sort of you know up to 15 years ago um, and we take in a number of interns every year and put them through a really intense training program. They have no experience when they come in um, and they do placements with all of our different companies. And, and it's a proper proper sort of graduate program almost. And we are increasingly taking um, applicants from sort of diverse and underrepresented groups um, for that, which wasn't something that we used to do um, when the scheme was first developed. We've also launched the 12-month Fast Track Inclusion Program, um, which we spent over half a million pounds on for a number of placements over the year, where we bring people in on a 12-month program. They, co- they come in originally to start on a production, but then we provide training and development and mentoring um, over the course of that 12 months and find another role for them on other productions and sort of use the benefits of the scale of the group to be able to offer that experience and, and training over a year. We're a patron of Mama Youth and we employ graduates every year from that program. We have about, I think it's about 40 centrally funded paid work experience places each year that we focus on underrepresented groups. And we also, I think if you just saw a couple of weeks ago, we just launched our specialist prosthetics makeup course to upskill black and um, Asian talent there as well. And there's, a, there's like other writers teams and, and we support the film and TV charity. So we do it in lots of different ways. We have sort of two or three really big schemes that we fund ourselves internally, and then we try and reach out and help support the industry initiatives as well. And we're just we're trying to set our own you know, internal targets for all of our MDs about you know, increasing diversity within all, all of our labels. And we've had quite a few high-profile hires that are helping to change that balance well. And how are you responding to the crew crunch? I suppose these programs, you know, is probably part of the answer. But uh, is there any uh, you know any other measures you've got in place? I mean, I think above all else, you, you can't force someone to come and work on your show and ultimately you know you've got to have the best shows that people want to work on um, and that's how you'll attract the best talent but you know we are finding it difficult like everybody it's a freelance industry 
and that ability to work across a huge variety of projects and companies is is a benefit for the industry and it's a benefit to us to have people that have had that diversity of experience but yeah the only place you can succeed is being a place where people want to work and I think at the end of the day most people just want to work on the most exciting projects when they're where they feel like they're also then being treated fairly respectfully and safely so it's all of those things. And then a very broad question um, what are your priorities and plans for this year? I'm going to sound like a broken record and say number one thing is scale in IP and, and development you know bigger ideas targeted development big ambitious bets and looking beyond the UK for growth really whilst also really cherishing our long-running UK shows our UK relationships that all underpin our, our core business I think about 20% of our titles last year were shows like sort of you know Janet and the Salisbury Poisonings and Travels with My Father and those big international things and we've got more delivering this year and we've got more international partnerships on things like Grantchester with Masterpiece and The Bridge with HBO, Good Karma Hospital with Acorn, and then the recently, I think, just announced The Courtship, which is was meant to be Peacock, but it's now moving to NDC, which is a co-probe in association with us, um, with ESNA. So that sort of international and scale piece, I think, is a big priority this year. Scripted, huge priority. It, you know, obviously, as we're coming out of COVID, it's going to be a really big year with all that backlog of shows, you know, that are now beginning to deliver through this year. I've got a lot that's launching and a lot that in production, and obviously with Double Dutch as well, sort of really hitting the ground running this year. I mean, picking up on your point earlier, regionality, I said we've got over a thousand hours. That's over 60% of our total um, is being produced outside London at the moment. And we've got another big announcement actually from the nations and regions that we're hopefully going to be able to make in the next couple of weeks. And then I think probably the final thing is around, I think we really do we really have made a commitment to changing the talent mix and the feel of the industry from certainly from our side anyway making sure that we're a really inclusive organization and doing our bit to help the the wider industry on that as well making sure that we are supportive that we're doing all we can to attract that diversity of voice in the content that we're developing and, and producing i think we've made inroads but like most people we're a long way off where we want to be eventually so i think that's another another big commitment um and then just one final question sorry a bit random but um what do you think the next next big hit will be in formats well but obvious thing is I want Starstruck to be the biggest thing on TV when it launches in a couple of weeks time I think it's going to be really interesting generally to see how the streamers really crack entertainment in a way that works for them in that in that non-linear space and there's obviously been you know there have been hits in, in non-scripted but what's their what's the next turn of the dial after too hot to handle and, and so on so I really I'm really intrigued to see where they go and where they go with the slightly more fact empty space as well because it's something that the linear channels do so well in their individual territory so it's a huge opportunity area for us it's something that we're incredibly strong in as a group and as a UK group so I say come on hope it's one of ours Lucinda Hicks speaking with Ruth Laws now over to Nico Franks to introduce our next interview Lucy Montgomery and Rhys Thomas will be familiar faces to many British comedy fans, with credits spanning a host of hits including Titty Bang Bang, The Fast Show and The Life of Rock with Brian Pern. The two have now made their first drama in the form of Dodger, which recently launched on BBC iPlayer and CBBC, aiming to bring families together around the TV and away from their devices. Set before the events of Oliver Twist, the historical comedy adventure series follows the often hilarious and hair-raising adventures of Dodger, Fagin, his gang and a colourful gallery of Victorian characters. The stellar cast includes Christopher Eccleston and David Threlfall, alongside a host of child actors, as well as guest stars Colin McFarlane, Alex Kingston, John Thompson, Phil Cornwall, Simon Day, Alexi Sale and Julian Barrett. 
Produced by Universal International Studios, a division of Universal Studio Group, it combines what Thomas says are British TV's traditional main areas of strength, the costume drama, comedy and children's telly. I spoke to him and Montgomery about the making of the show and how it aims to go up against the kind of big-budget Hollywood fare from the streamers that have become the norm for family viewing. Yes, hello, I'm Lucy Montgomery. I am co-writer, executive producer and also acting in Dodger. And my name is Amrice Thomas and I'm the creator, uh, co-writer and director and I'm also executive producer and I put myself in it as well. And you did the catering. I did the catering and I did the and I and I supplied all the the cups. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, Dickens adaptations over the years, and lots of Oliver Twist adaptations. So tell me a bit about why we needed uh, a new adaptation or twist on Oliver Twist in 2022. Oh, I like what you did there. Very nice. The difference between this and any other uh, adaptation is this: this is a prequel to Oliver Twist. Oliver Twist isn't in the isn't in this at all. The idea here is to take the fun characters, the interesting characters, which are the sort of working, well, the, the, the poor gang members, Dodger, Fagan, Bill Sykes, Nancy, and all the kids, and, give, and, and see how they, and, and follow their adventures rather than, uh, you know, in the underworld and, uh, you know, trying to survive every day, trying to make money by picking pockets. And the key sort of message, I think, is that rather than showing the kids as thieves, it's about survival, it's about children who at that time had to rob to survive and and they're led by Fagan who is sort of there who we've we've changed the character of Fagan quite quite a lot um from the Dickens version it's been very much updated uh and so have the parts of uh Bill Sykes and Nancy so they're very different to what you've seen in the book yeah so we it gave us an opportunity to take those quite problematic characters Bill Nancy Fagan and put a fresh new spin on them um and it also gave us a chance to create brand new child characters. So we've got a whole new generation of child stars, which I'm sure the world will love um, in the same way they love the kids and Stranger Things. So we could create brand new kids as well as put a fresh spin on um, some problematic um, adults. What makes them problematic? Nancy, obviously, um, we're not playing her like a tart with a cockney tart with a heart. She now has real agency. She is a thief herself. She runs rings around Bill, who she's controlling. Bill is basically like a brain damaged idiot. He's not very intelligent. He's the muscle, but he doesn't come up with any of the schemes. Um, With Fagin, we have thought about what it was to be Jewish um, at that time in London and his experience. And he has a, a traumatic backstory that reflects the time. But he's very mercurial, the way Christopher Eccleston is playing him. He, he's got the kind of the feel of an East End gangster, but he also likes to sew and he likes a cup of tea from a, a floral china cup. So he's very much, he's not the Fagin you've ever seen before, hopefully, we feel. And he's brought a fresh take to that. Yes, he's not like a grotesque stereotype, which I, I think we'd all say is the case in the in Dickens uh, in the original, and also we've looked at you know the, the the backstory of all these characters at that time. You know, it was a traumatic time to live. 1837 was a completely different world to now, and all the children are damaged in certain ways. And Fagin kind of becomes a, he's more of a mother and a father figure to all of them. He is, you know, he and although they rob and he and he's you know and they steal. There's a, a slight element of Robin Hood about it. We've, we've, we've changed it so that Fagin is, you know, he is morally ambiguous and, he, you know, he is getting children to do sort of naughty things for him. But there's a reason for it. He's sharing and he's caring and he has and he does look out for all of them. 
And there's a definite bond between him and Dodger. The story is about their bond and the fact that in this, in our version, Fagan lost the family and they're dead. And uh, Dodger is sort of the replacement son that he never, that he has no longer has. But um, it's not all right. heavy. It's very, very funny. So we come from yes. comedy backgrounds. So there's lots of jokes in the middle of all that. Um, all that heart and soul. We always made sure that there were loads of jokes. The kids always come out on top. They're very witty. Fagin might be, he, Fagin might sometimes slam his door and not come out. But then the next time you see him, he's cracking jokes and he's very, very funny. And the kids are hilarious too. So Billy Jenkins, who plays Dodger, he's a natural comedian, but he can also really tug at your heartstrings. Yeah, there's a tendency to get bogged down in these interviews about, you know, the characters and the parallels with today, which there are. But essentially, the programme is, I mean, that's what a lot of adults will, the adults will see that, I suppose. And, and people who want to, you know, they, we, we haven't, uh, we've addressed a lot of issues and we've made it believable and real. But at the same time, it's, it's really fun. And the, the, I honestly think every episode is completely different. None of the same. They're unpredictable. In the 45 minute, the 45 minutes go very fast um and, yeah, and one, so one week what, sorry to shout out of you Easton. yes <laughs> yeah we wanted to, to have like a goonies feel we love all those pixar films and to have that gang show feel entertaining people um so one week you're they're, they're robbing a they're robbing a mummy from the british museum the next week they're robbing the queen in buckingham palace then they're in a haunted theater so every time the kids tune in every week every episode there's something a fresh new world they're in a very a high stakes dramatic funny thrilling world um and then we also have them in the lair as the linchpin and then dodger over the course of the series it's a cat and mouse with the chief of police he is desperate to catch him played by david threlfall from shameless desperate to catch him so that's the through line for the whole 10 episodes it's very it's a bit like the fugitive you know we've taken elements of that and that yeah and uh each week will will the, will the police catch uh dodger and also in terms of in terms of thinking of this, I mean, we've generally want to make this as a universal program, something that will go all over the world. You know, we one thing that, that, that I think the BBC does and we do it, what we're famous for in Britain around the world before all the reality television programs. But we, we it's, it's costume drama, it's comedy and children's telly. I think we, that's our forte, I think. And I think this is a combination. We, I think hopefully we've combined all those things in Dodger. And given it, a, it's not a fight, it's not a costume drama you often think of as, you know, a, a musty, you know, oh, hello there, bub, 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 bub. And it's none of that. I mean, we've got really brilliant music and it's really fast, it's fast edited. You don't, you don't really sit still. I remember there's that quote from Steven Spielberg, which is, you know, we're going to sell you a, a seat. You're going to buy a ticket uh, for a seat, but you're only going to use the edge of it. Something along oh, those lines. Oh, that's good. And, and I think with Dodger, I think that each episode, we kind of treat them like a mini film. Each, we, we make each episode like it like it's the last episode you're ever going to see, if that makes sense. We pack it full. We've made programs before in the past, Lucy and I, where you sort of go, well, we'll hold that back for next series or we'll hold People this back. People tell we'll you do to, that. don't they? They yes. say, oh, save it. And this time we were like, we're not saving anything. It's all going in. Every second counts. Because we know our kids are 11 and 13. And they watch loads of stuff with us. And we know what they want to see. And we know they do not want to see kissing. They do not want to see boring monologues. They want to see oh. action, fun. And hilarious kids who are plucky and against the odds, they always win out. So, they yeah. And and the kids in this also, you know, the whole the the, the other thing why we want this to appeal to adults as well. I mean, they, you know, you know, there are children. You know, my children talk going to school and they talk about you know Squid Games and all things things like that. What's nice about this program is it is for the whole family. There is something for everyone. 
the older the older members of the public who watch it, the older audiences who hopefully watch it with their children, and it's a safe program you can all watch together. But you know, sometimes there are jokes in there that adults will get in the way that Pixar does so well and and The Simpsons does so well. You know, you've got this. It works on two levels, and and in fact, the adults in it are basically like children. You know, like even the chief of police, Charles Rowan, and all and the and there's Duff and Blathers, who are the two cops who are sort of searching for uh, Dodger. There's an element of the Pink Panther about it. There's an element of like hapless policemen and kids always outwitting authority or, or um, you know, and so that has a, a gen- has like a universal appeal for everybody. And you mentioned, yeah, your backgrounds in comedy and particularly sketch comedy. You've, you've, both of you have done a lot of that. Did that have an influence as well in terms of the pace of the show? Yeah, I, th- I think so, because you what you, in a sketch, you have to in in one line you have to encapsulate the character. First line, second line, you have to know who this is. This character is immediately. I think that is a really good discipline for writers because you know that every scene it has to be tight and taut. And um, but having said that, what we did was we were always rewriting. So I suppose the difference with a drama that is delivered, you go here's the script. Every word is sacred. We were constantly rewriting it on set in rehearsal. Um, if it didn't feel right. You have to be nimble with it. So I think that comes from a comedy background of going, chuck it out. Okay, so this is good, but chuck that out. Let's redo it if it's not working. And the actors were brilliant at that, and the kids were really good at that. Um, yeah, I mean, even now, even now in the edit, we're still adding extra lines in with ADR or rewriting scenes, or you know. And again, as you say, with with a sketch show or with a with a sitcom, you know, I think I always remember the rule is that two pages is as much as you need. You know, you don't have a scene that goes on for more than two pages move on, move on quick. And it happens with, with Dodger. I mean, there are a lot, I mean, when we first went into production in a boring way, this is, a, but, but the, the people who, a lot of people come from children's drama before, conventional children's drama. And when they saw the number of scenes, um, they were like, what? Uh, because we worked, because we come from that sketch show comedy background and it's all about pace and being quick and fast. And, and, and so they weren't quite used to that sort of speed. Um, and because we've come from often, often drama has a lot more money than comedy. Uh, and so you have to be very inventive in, in comedy. And, you know, you know, you film, you know, for example, with Christopher Eccleston and a lot of the actors, we had to kind of treat it like a sketch show where you go, they're in for a certain number of days and we have to film all these scenes out of order. We didn't have blocks like you do in drama. Uh, we tried to do all that, but COVID put an end to, to it. <laughs> but we, so we lost a lot of our time, but in a way, it worked and we got a lot of our sketch show friends in, comedy friends and casting comedy people. And even someone like David Threlfall, he's in one of the funniest comedies uh, called Nightingales. And, and he's very funny and shameless. I mean, we think of him as a serious actor, but he's very, very funny. And it's the same with Christopher Eccleston. We've worked with him. Uh, we, um, he was in a couple of comedies we've written before. And it's nice to surprise people and show the other side of someone like Christopher but without that drama side, Fagan wouldn't work. So he's funny and very serious. And, so, also, think- and he was he was up for doing um, he was up for changing lines because some high drama actors they won't they don't want that they want it locked in they want to know what they're doing. But he was very much chuck it out. Let's try something. He would suggest funny lines himself, and we'd use. Um, and uh, also, I'd say with your with Reece, the way he was directing it, often because people think. Oh, we are. We have come from comedy, and it's children's. They sometimes people would come in and do quite a broad performance on their first take, and Reese would always say, "Do the Mike Lee version," because actually, it's a fine line between. You don't want it to become too broad because this is supposed to be. We need to believe these children are hungry and having a terrible time um, trying to survive. So it has to have that element of 
realism. And that was very important, I would say, wouldn't you, Reese, with the, yeah. the way you directed it? Uh, yes, I mean, it was a, a genuine intention from the very beginning to go to, to the BBC with it, because I've grown up on children's television from the BBC. And I still think that the BBC is the one place in the world that has that duty where it does educate, inform and entertain. And the thing about Dodger is, uh, on, on a basic level, a lot of the stuff, it's not just put together and, and, and all made up nonsense. You know, we've deliberately taken lots of factual, the, everything that happens in it, a lot of the characters who we haven't invented, and a lot of the stories are based on factual events, real things that happened. Um, and so it's sort of, so, so through sort of almost like osmosis, people are learning, we want children to learn about things. The dream was like Sunday night, tea time, Doctor Who, sit down with all the family. That slot is so we knew the children, our children, obviously no violence whatsoever and no no romance. And the just the right edge of thrillingly scary without making children feel like they, they they're not going to see something that will give them nightmares. There's nothing like that. So we, mm. we pushed it as far as we could with the thrills without making it terrifying for children. And you mentioned it being, you know, potentially appealing beyond the UK. And we write a lot about, you know, series that are intentionally kind of international. And sometimes that manifests itself in a, a police drama that's, you know, set between Germany, France and, and stuff like that. But they're kind of things are moving on beyond that now, definitely. Do you get a sense of, you know, when you're writing and developing things that you think it happens best if it happens naturally? Or do you sometimes tweak and think actually... This is a bit too much of a UK reference, potentially. Well, I mean, I would say no. I think I, you, the first thing you have to do is make it for yourself and like it and, and be happy with it, your, the, the, the episode yourself. The moment you try and tailor something to make it like a, have a universal appeal, it kind of gets lost and, and you miss the point. It's what, what makes this good, I think, is the fact it is British and it's a British product that everyone who loves British things around the world or whatever, or British drama or comedy, We'll, we'll, we'll find that and like it for themselves. The moment you try and put in, the moment you put one of them saying diaper in it, for, for example, <laughs> you go, why, why, why is he talking about diapers? You know, the moment you, I, I think you have to make it quintessential. All the best, all the best shows that we've made uh, has come out of Britain have never been made for, uh, they've always either been accidentally successful or, or they've been, uh, you know, Doctor Who, for example, you know, they didn't think about it when that began and, the, and that's a, a huge export. That's very British, and um, that's kind of the appeal of it. And I think that's the same with Dodger. But I think what we do have is we've got world we've got world class stars who I think will appeal in the US and all around the world. People, you Alex Kingston was in one episode, and she's unbelievable. Obviously, Krista Eccles and David Threlf are very well known. And then also, I think what I like, I think we've done, and I hope we've done, is if we've got some quite odd, fun language in there, in the way that Dickens would create. Um, you know, he would create funny, funny turns of phrase. We've got that. So hopefully it will create a whole new lexicon of its own in a way, in the way that J.K. Rowling, you know, you know her language, you know her phrases. So hopefully we've got that as well, which will become take on a life of its own. And um, also, and what's easy about it is also an audience around the world already. There's a shortcut because they all know Fagan. They all know Dodger, you know, even down to, um, you know, the fact there's even been a Disney film, uh, Oliver and Company with a cat, Oliver. And there's been, and Dodger, I think, was played by, I don't know if he was uh, Burt Reynolds or someone. I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, the fact is everyone around yeah, the world. It's a brand, isn't it? It's a worldwide brand with a fresh British spin. Yes. I can't say that without talking like that. <laughs> it's very hard to say. Yeah. How are you feeling about the kind of general health of the industry at the moment? Obviously, pan the pandemic threw up lots and lots of challenges. How are you feeling about 2022 and um, 
ongoing projects that you've got. We need to save the BBC first. Save yes. The BBC. Please, please, please. Um, <laughs> oh, God, that's the main the main worry. Apart from global warming, save the BBC. You know, we were very lucky with NBC and BBC that we were able to carry on through the production of that, you know, that, that time, which was probably the worst time to make anything. You know, we, we, we slightly benefited because we had a year off. Our programme was put back by a year and all their children got a year older, which was a bit of a worry. But apart from that, our scripts kind of got better. And then we were able to sort of turn them from half hour scripts into 45 minute scripts, which is the big difference. And that gave us lots of time. But uh, but we did. I mean, it shut- feels like an exciting time for TV. It has done for it a does. while. I, I feel like we're in the best job ever. Um, the, the breadth of work that's out there, the diversity—it's all going in the right direction. We need to keep up with that. Um, yeah, it feels exciting. I the quality, to- yeah, and also the quality is good. I mean, I think that actually, you look at the films. I mean, I find there's no, there are probably every year there's probably about two films I want to see these days. Whereas on television, there must be a thousand programmes I want to watch. And now I think it's a really good time for television. And I think that especially in England, you know, and uh, the United Kingdom, you know, there are so, you know, it's hard even to book a studio now because everyone wants to film here. So we must make the most of that. Um, but we need to look at, I think, first of all, you know, we need to, we generally need to look at BBC and Channel and, and, and BBC Channel 4. And not, there's this obsession with competing with streamers and all that kind of thing. And although they do one job, we need to protect what the BBC does, which is a very different, you can't really compare the two. So I, I, I do hope that the BBC doesn't, um, you know, doesn't suffer too much from these freezes and all, all sorts. Because they're the only, they are the only, the BBC and Channel 4, particularly BBC, do, do care about diversity. They do care about uh, um, um, making programmes that educate and inform and all those things. I mean, which... look at how all our children were educated in the pandemic, thanks to the BBC. If you yeah. had a, a screen or a telly, you would be all right. Um, yeah. You have to be a primary school teacher every single day of your life. I mean, we haven't, we can't forget that. It feels a bit like Dodger is a bit of a response to the streamers because the streamers have been, you know, upping the budgets and bringing in, you know, higher and higher in cast and productions and you know children are gravitating towards that and it so for me looking at dodger and the cast and the production it looks like it's an intentional step up in ambition oh yes i mean i think you know a lot of those things on disney plus all those star wars things i mean they are amazing it's 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 like it is like watching a film now on television you know it's 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 not like a television program it reminds me a bit of in the 70s and 80s where where you know you'd have Doctor Who and then you'd have Star Wars films and Buck Rogers and how we were trying to compete with something that was had a lot more money involved. Dodger wasn't a huge budget compared to. I mean, it's a fraction of what a lot of other um, programs. You know, you, you compare that to Mandalorian and all those sort of things. You know, there's it's a, a tiny amount, but you can still be inventive. And and we're not. And in fact, you know, like I think there's a place for everybody. And and I think that and I love what's amazing is there's so much choice. That, you know, there is so much choice. It's not getting lost in the choice, which is a key thing. Um, also being ambitious from the outset, like Reese was always very ambitious with the casting, saying, let's try the top of our list. You know, you think, ah, we won't get there. We won't get there, but let's try. And then we always got the people we wanted, which was unreal. You get definitely get, they. I mean, certainly for Christopher and David Threlfall, they don't just turn up for work and go, oh, and they do the script. I mean, they uh, Christopher to to maintain his accent would talk in that accent all day long, because because he was one he was conscious about his East End Jewish accent, you know, and he has a very very subtle way of sort of um, of 
of his of sort of softening his R's, which is a which is a very distinct sort of East End Jewish sort of accent. And he worked so hard on that because he, you know, being from Salford, he didn't want everyone to slip up. So he had to sort of stay in, in the accent, not in character, but in the accent all the time. And and he really researched, you know, in, in terms of you know, the, the Fagan character is, is based on a man called Ike Solomon, who was who, who Dickens based uh, Fagan on in the first place. And Christopher went into a lot of detail and read, the, there's a book called Prince of Fences, which Christopher read and, he, and he consulted he, Simon Sharma, yeah, as well, as well to make sure so, he was he got it right and was being respectful and and yeah, getting the detail right. And then and there and there and then you've got um, um, David Threlfall, who would again he because the character uh, Charles Rowan is a, is a real character, a real man. He was the chief of police, and 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 uh, David really went into detail about him uh, and researched you know his backgrounds you know he fought in waterloo and so you really do it's amazing to have actors coming in who are so prepared and give everything to every single second on screen which they both did and when you've got certain deadlines see when you're working with children and i think the children were wonderful you know i think that one of the great things the best experience i had on this was working with these brilliant young people who have got so much enthusiasm so much fun i've never directed children before this is the biggest thing i've ever done you know i've done cult sort of little sort of comedy things and this was a big learning curve for me and what helped was having these brilliant child actors and the only hard part was you know when you're making a program like this there's the there's the hours so you know normally when you're filming something your cutoff point is the end of the day seven o'clock you stop filming that's it with dodger every day you had about three moments where you'd go right that actor has to finish at a certain time because they've got schooling you have to finish that scene by a certain time because that actor has to go off and and, and have their teaching we lose that child at 4.30. We've got that one till 5.30. Oh, we've got COVID. So what, two of them can't even come in. One of the actors got uh, Javon Prince. His wife had a baby, so he he went, he had to go. So part of Dodger was shuffling and juggling all these all these elements, which um, which I look back now and I think I don't know how I I look back now and I think it was just it was just so fun. I mean, I don't regret. I mean, it was a long. It was 90 days, but it was 90 days of fun, and I think. That does come across in the programme. I do think when you watch it, I think you can see that people, certainly the actors on screen were having a good time. And, I, and, I, and that comes across. So that old, that old adage that, you know, never work with children or animals, that's, that's yeah. not quite true. I, or animals, yes. But yeah, children, the dog was, was a very badly trained dog. Sorry, Bullseye. Um, <laughs> but that doesn't come across. He's got some wonderful moments on screen. So, you know. Yes. Um, yeah, the dog, the dog, we had... every He's dog. only going to kill me now. No, but the dog, no, because you cannot train a, a bull terrier, you see. They're untrainable. But we didn't hear that until he turned up on set, so great. No, and he, was thinking, he didn't do anything. And Paul and Sam Wilson, who plays Bill Sykes, often we had to act with this dog that just would just keep barking through the whole thing. And with some clever editing, we've managed to sort of, you know, use the dog quite well. But um, No, but yeah, the children was, were amazing. Amazing, yeah. delightful, so talented. Um, and, yeah, we were lucky to have them. Charlie Higson was involved as well, so that was a kind of mini fast show reunion. Yes, he wrote one episode. Because, uh, he wrote because originally, and weirdly enough, originally I had it about 10, 15 years ago. He was writing these young Bond books, and I said to him, "I've got this idea to do Young Dodger, you know, pre Oliver Twist." And he put, got me into his to have a meeting with his publishers, and then that's how it all sort of started. And the storyline, which is. Uh, the episode one and episode seven of Dodger were effectively going to be the storyline for this book idea I had. And then it, nothing really happened with it and it sort of sat around for ages. 
when the idea came up to do this, I thought it'd be really nice to ask Charlie to do it because also we were doing 10 episodes and he'd made stuff like uh, Professor Brainstorm and his books, are, he has a, his books are very are good. His young adult books are really fun. They don't talk down to children. And, I, and, I, and it was just really nice to work with him uh, again. Uh, so we kind of had the storyline and we sort of handed it over to him and he sort of wrote, this, wrote the story. So episode seven is the episode he wrote. Uh, and then we had a few far show people in it. So John Thompson's in it and Simon Day from, uh, and Colin McFarlane. They've all been in the far show before. So that was nice. Lucy Montgomery and Reese Thomas speaking with Nico Franks. Mikhail Osterby is head of factual acquisitions at SVT, responsible for picking up programming from around the world to feed the Swedish public broadcasters linear networks and streaming service. He spoke to Ruth Laws about buying not only for SVT, but fellow Scandinavian pubcasters NRK, DR and YLE also, as part of a collaboration designed to counter the growing power of international SVOD players. Osterby also talked about what kinds of shows he's looking for, those that have proven successful in recent years, and why he prefers pre-buys over co-productions. What is the Scandinavian one-stop shop? <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's Wiley, NRK, DR, and SCG, the public service broadcasters in Scandinavia. Uh, and, and we realized we're too small. So when a big, you know, UK-based production companies have, has, they have, they have this great idea and we know it's going to be tough you know, race, they might sell it to Amazon or Netflix or, uh, but they've been, you know, they have been talking to BBC. They can go to us instead of having four or five different calls. They can just call me and I'll be talking for all of the countries at the same time. And I have, and so I'll say, okay, we're interested in, give me, give me two hours or give it two days. I'll get back to you. And then you get a, like a joint offer from all of us. So instead of, you know, making that phone call to everybody, just call one of us or the one you know best. Perhaps you know Anders better in, in Denmark or Karina in NRK. So you call me. So one call, I gather the group, all the channels. I talk to them generally very quickly, and then I can come back to you. And in, so you get a, a, a so you one contract, uh, a higher fee, uh, and you know just make it easy for the production company because we are too small. I mean, I mean, I mean, we're big in our country, but on the global market, this is a global market these days. Uh, we're too small. So you know, and Scandi is like or Nordic countries. That's normally one area of rights. So it's easy for them to carve out. And it's hard for them to carve out just Sweden because HBO Norden uh, wants all the country. So it's an area territorially that is easy to handle. And then, you, you know, Scandinavian one start shop. If you want to do business with the public service broadcasters, if you have something early on, if you want to do something big, give us a ring. When did you found that? Or how long has that been going for? It's been going on for a while. We just didn't call it one Scandinavian one stop shop. We've been doing it for current affairs and, and documentaries for a long time and sometimes we did it for you know if it's a big history project but what this is is that we meet every week or every second week and talk about the stuff we're buying and that you know we share information and then we've you know built this structure so uh, if we need to do something quickly we can do that within 24 hours so how does that work with in terms of windowing do you all just have the same tx date yeah i mean we try to i mean of course that's not always happening but that's that's the idea but normally we buy for like three years but we get the same rights and we kind of and that is free to air rights and that is free vod non-exclusive so we could coexist with the SVOD players and stuff like that 
So, but we were trying to be smooth and easy and quick. Do you commission different content for Linear and then the VOD platform? Like, or how does windowing work between the two? Well, it's it's uh, online first. Uh, online, our I, the SVT play that our iPlayer that that is actually a bigger platform than our Linear channels now. Okay, so it's more important. So we go on online first, and it's the same content. But of course, we do have like daytime broadcast. You know, for Linear, for instance. I buy Antiques Roadshow. That's not really an iPlayer, you know, the English or British version. It's not. It's that is for my daytime. I know. But of course, there is a difference. Now the difference is that linear is older, it's 60 plus, and online is under 50. Um, and what content are you looking to acquire? I, I, I cover all non-scripted genres internationally, not domestically. So it's it's everything. To, to be honest, the most, I mean, what we find most tricky is uh, uh, popular docs and true crime because it's very, very competitive market. Everybody wants that. I mean, so for instance, we're doing uh, Ron Jeremy, uh, the Channel 4 documentary. We just did Chippendales and stuff like that. Just Lane Maxwell, it's been that everybody's looking for something about her. That's the area that we really want to find, that popular documentary series that everybody's interested in. And so that if you have that, please talk to us. So premium documentary true crime and documentary series that is the aim because it's working really well for us on the iPlayer but I'm also you know I buy a lot of the history one-offs uh, with a very clear uh, topic uh, and we find that female history but you know s- stories that are uh, attracting female viewers men tend to watch that as well so I mean the British royal family always were something about that you know the big thing is Queen Elizabeth Elizabeth II seven decades so the documentary series about that, please give me a ring. Um, what are you looking to acquire within lifestyle? We have Married First Sight, we have First Dates, we have Taskmasters, more entertainment. Uh, the problem is for us, SVG, is that if we do uh, reality in Swedish, it tends to work really well. But when I buy something in English or whatever language, it doesn't work that well. But if we do uh, Married First Sight in Swedish first, then I can buy the international versions and TX afterwards and then it works. So it has to do something with the brand knowledge, I guess. Uh, they need to understand, you know, what it is. So uh, when you ask me, what, what are you looking for? We don't know. Seriously, we do not know. We're, we're really analyzing. We are doing a lot of research. We're looking into the numbers, but we do not know. But it, when it comes to the iPlayer, it always needs to be really, really good because there's so much out there. And Netflix is super big in Sweden. So if you have a big platform doing 12 dating shows and you're supposed to introduce a new one it has to be something spectacular how do you compete with the global players like netflix in your market like how, how do you sort of differentiate your content from theirs the thing that we uh, compete with is local content hi we're swedes hi we speak swedish hi we understand you the audience and, and it, it, it's working well but it, the problem is that i mean we were super big online we were like 80 percent 10 years ago 80 percent of the market was svt because we were really really early on with the iPlayer, and now we're like 10 10 years we've dropped that 
that quickly because I mean you have Amazon, you have HBO, you have Netflix, and we have and there are two local like Nordic platforms called Viaplay and Seymour here in Sweden as well. So it's a fierce competition. And uh, so so but what we do is we try to be local, we try to speak Swedish and uh, like history and science, all those docs we um, we do a Swedish narration. We exchange to so some of the interviews. If BBC Horizon has done an interview with somebody in England, we buy that program and we exchange the interview because we have a specialist in Sweden that can say the same thing. So we do that a lot. Do you have any examples of shows that have been really successful for you over the past year? Something that really did well for us was 9-11, uh, the Amazon documentary called Minute by Minute. And it's the straightest storytelling ever. The most watched documentaries last year. Um, Taskmaster is doing well. Merit at First Sight is doing well. Oh, Spice Girls documentaries. That did really well. We had the, you know, the whole Britney Spears thing. So when you go young and when you go current, it's, it's working for us. We just did we just did a documentary from PBS on cannabis. Fever Pitch, the rise of the Premier League, that did really well for us. Something that did really well for us was the Dynasties. It's a CNN documentary that I think BBC also has broadcast. This is six hours on the Windsor. From the from the start when they changed their name, it's it's I don't know, millions. Seriously, millions. And we are a small country of 10 million. 1.5 million people have, you know, watched that documentary. Is there anything that hasn't worked so well? I mean, I assume you probably don't want to name a specific show, but is there a general kind of area? We usually say that the topic and the character or the celebrity that brings the people in and the story keeps them there. For instance, we have Louis Thoreau. He works in Sweden as well, okay? So he's, he's, he normally does a really interesting topic. He's a very known character and he does it really, really well. Then it works. What does not work? I mean, I mean, you have to ask yourself, uh, it was easier. I know I used to work with scheduling. I can tell you those days, I love them. Because when I worked with scheduling, that was like 15 years ago. You know, if you had 8 p.m., you know, SVT is as big as BBC. So think BBC One, 8 p.m., whatever you put there got audience, okay? People just sat there. So it was just making them stay there. And that was quite easy. So, so you got like a million people just pouring into your program. Thank you. These days, that audience, they have like 10,000 choices. First choice is where should I go to Amazon or should I go to Netflix or should I go to SVT Play? And then we have like 600 hours, 1,000 hours. I don't know. I mean, I think it's like 10,000 hours in our catalog. And how do how do they find that? So, I mean, it's really complicated to make people choose your program. And out of 10,000 choices, why would they pick your program? The other thing I wondered was what your pre-sales strategy and co-production strategy is. I'm, I'm buying around 1,000 hours, 1,000 episodes, I'd say. I'd say 60% of those are completed programs and the rest are co-production, very few co-productions, but a lot of pre-buys. Because uh, these days, if you don't pre-buy, every, everything is sold. We never done, we never always try to avoid co-productions because they're so expensive and they take so much time. But of course we do them sometimes. But uh, I'd rather do uh, like a pre-buy. Well, let's talk about uh, Chernobyl. It's coming up, I think, on Channel 4. So that could be a co-production. It's not. It's a pre-buy. We will be editing rights. So we pre-buy that from Blink Films, but we have the rights to cut it. So what we do is the intro is different and the interviews are in Swedish. And because we have a different story, we add like one minute. So we do more of that instead of getting involved in a co-production with Blink Films and Channel 4 and saying, we want to change the storytelling. They don't want to do that. They won't tell their UK story. So everybody gets happy. They get early money and uh, they get more money because I also edit rights and uh, end of the day their audience and my audience are super happy uh, 
Um, and you said you sorry you, you buy a thousand hours. Is that a year? Has that been consistent since you've had this role? Or well, I, I've I've had this role now for like fifteen years. So we started off with we bought two hundred episodes a year. Five years ago, we bought fifteen hundred episodes a year, and now we're down to like nine hundred hours because right now it, it has to do with because everything is so expensive. So uh, and my budget has not gone up efficient, you know, enough for me to buy. So I'm I need to because you know buying Spice Girls or buying I don't know all the you know the premium stuff is more is quite expensive. It's fewer, better, bigger because we have this I don't know what you call it in English, but we live in household economy. You, you, we have the budget, and that's the budget we get, and we get the money from the government, and that's the money we have. We don't have more money. So if we want to do something more expensive, we need to do less. But Netflix and Curiosity Stream and they are living in this expectancy economy that they have some risk capitalists, venture capital coming in, pouring in some of the money because they think in five years they will, you know, grow. I mean, they, I think they, most of the platforms still are showing red numbers. I can't do red numbers. I have one budget and, you know, I, I need to break even. So I need to, you know, resolve it within the budget I have. And therefore, so yes, yeah, same thing for commissioning. We commission less, but pay more. Same thing with acquisition and co-production pre-buying. We buy less, but we pay more. Mikhail Osterby speaking with Ruth Laws. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussion by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.